0: If you've been around here at our church for any length of time, uh, you probably know that I'm a, I'm a Nike man, all right? I rock the Nikes. You probably see them, did. I wore them today for a specific reason, uh, but I'm a Nike man. Nike is the most popular athletic shoe in the universe, thanks to the GOAT, Michael Jordan, all right? I got to start the debate amongst our students. No, it's LeBron. No, he's the GOAT. Uh, but... It's thanks to him that we know Nike, the brand. A lot of people talk about Nike, the shirts, the shoes, all the swag, but they don't know what Nike actually means. The company was founded in 1969, Uh, Nike, but they got the word, it's a Greek word that's actually pronounced Nike, which means victory. Victory. That word victory is a very, very important theme in all of the book of Revelation, but specifically today in chapter 7, victory or Nikkei is the theme of what we're going to look at today. Uh, The book of Revelation was written over 2,000 years ago, uh, but it wasn't written to the Christians in the first century uh, that was exclusively about the end times. It was a book written to give them encouragement and hope in the mean times. It wasn't a book for them to study a future tribulation. It was a book of hope and encouragement uh, during their present tribulation, the tribulation that all Christians face all throughout history over and over again. We all face it, and they needed encouragement. We need encouragement also today. Now, if you've been following along with our study How does Jesus encourage the Christian to press on? Well, you'll know that in the book of Revelation, Jesus didn't stand up and give a prosperity gospel speech. Follow me, I'll keep you from tribulation. You won't suffer at all. I'll give you everything. You can have your best life now. That's not how he encouraged them. He encouraged them by saying, hey, the suffering and tribulation you're going through, I'm over it, I'm causing it, It's all for your good. You just don't know it yet, but the sovereign lamb of Jesus is causing all of the tribulation. But it's all for a very specific purpose, and that would give us hope and encouragement even when we don't understand. But I think the greatest encouragement that Jesus gives to us and the first century Christian is this picture of the throne room of God that we've talked about today and read. The victory, the Nikkei, the final end of the entire story. That is the greatest encouragement that we get to see. It's not just an encouragement later that we get. It's supposed to give us hope and encouragement right now. And what's amazing about this book is how relevant it is. Written 2,000 years ago, but it's absolutely timeless. It speaks exactly to what we're going through in our world today. Christianity is on the world's hit list. Persecution killed Christians. The number of Christians killed for their faith has, there's been more in the past 100 years than the previous 1,900 years combined. Christianity is also on the world's black list. It's a cuss word in our culture almost today, and it will increasingly become more offensive. You know that the pastors in Denmark have to submit their sermons to the government before they can preach on Sunday. We may not be far from that. We aren't popular. The world does not like us, all right? It appears to be losing, 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 tribulation, tribulation, tribulation for the Christian today, which could potentially cause us to shrink back, doubt, despair everywhere, what is happening to the world, woe is us kind of mentality, right? It could very easily fall into that. So what we need is a picture of the throne room of God, the victory. So it would give us hope, encouragement now to live a victorious life now in Christ because he has Nike. We also have Nike. So that's what we're going to talk about uh, today. Let me catch you up on where we've been and get you caught up in chapter 6. Of the book of Revelation, what we saw was uh, Jesus takes the scroll from God the Father. The scroll contained uh, these judgments of God released on the earth throughout all of history. Begin way back when Jesus ascended to the earth or ascended into heaven, and these unfolding judgment. Four horsemen came in judgment, judgment, judgment. Each one is increasing in intensity. Um, and then we'll finally end at the very, very last seal uh, where, where God just pours out his ultimate judgment. He returns, Jesus descends, and the end of the world as we know it, right? It's complete, total devastation, God's wrath on people who don't follow Jesus. Well, what we're going to see today is a pause in the middle. In the middle of the sixth and seventh seal, What we're going to see today is this uh, picture of the throne room of God. Now, if you remember with us last week, what we saw on Judgment Day, end of the world, God returns and then every single person who doesn't believe in Jesus tries to run and hide from the face of God. They are so terrified, they try to hide in caves they, they actually beg for mountains to fall on them and kill them because they would rather face death than face the wrath of God. It's a terrifying thing. They're running, they're scattering, and they cry these words out at the very end of what we looked at last week, and they said, who can stand? Who can stand against God on this judgment day? And it's a great, great question, and that's what happens here. There's a pause in the middle Of the sixth and seventh seal, John is going to answer the question, who can stand on judgment day? Who can stand on judgment day? Who can stand and not be a victim in the hands of an angry God? Who doesn't have to run on judgment day and try to hide and flee the wrath of God? Who doesn't have to do that, right? That's what he's going to answer today. Who can stand? All right, so let me pray, and then, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll let this do its thing. All right, Father, we love you, and I thank you for worship that's already happened. And uh, worship's not over. Worship is through the teaching of your word, too, so I pray that we would stay dialed in all throughout the every single moment of our day and our time. And God, I'm your servant, so help me to preach Your word to your people for your purpose and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's what I want you to see today. The answer to the question, who can stand? The first is those who are sealed. Those who are sealed can stand on this day. Let's read it together. And, uh, and we'll break this thing down. This is in verse seven, or chapter 7, 1 through 8. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Who can stand? Notice, it's not those who didn't commit murder, lie, or commit adultery. Notice, who can stand on this day? It's not people that are better than most people. It's not people who had a sincere religion in their life. It's not people that uh, men avoided the big sins. It's not people that have fish magnets on their bumper sticker who are part of First Baptist Church in Smyrna, Tennessee, who got baptized or covenant members. It's not any of those. It's not even people who believe in God. Didn't James say even the demons believe in God? So who can stand on the day of judgment? Only those who are sealed. Five times the word sealed is used in this passage. If you have your Bible, mark those up. Seal, seal, seal. Very, very important to what we're talking about today. Now, in context, what's happening, these four angels are sent to the four corners of the earth. No, the earth is not flat. The four corners represents the north, the south, the east, and the west, the entirety of the universe. And these four angels who are coming to harm the earth can't harm the earth until all of the servants of God are sealed up. Let me tell you what's actually happening. There's a flashback moment happening. Jesus, or John, is taking us back to before the four horsemen were released, the judgment of the earth. Before they can harm the earth, all of these are sealed. So that's what's happening here. They cannot release judgment on the earth until all the servants of God are sealed. Doesn't that sound a lot like Noah and his family in the ark? God is going to pour out wrath on the world, the unbelieving world. But he will not do it until Noah and his entire family are sealed inside of the ark. That's what's happening here. Not a leaf can blow, a wind can blow on the earth. Not a hair on the head of one of God's people will be harmed until they're all sealed up. Now, what we see here is those who are sealed are described as the 144,000, all right? So now we get all the questions, right? Who's the 144? This has caused a lot of debate throughout the ages. Some are good arguments. Some are off the wall crazy, right? Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe this is a literal actual number of the people that will be in heaven, and surprisingly, they're all Jehovah's witnesses. But if you aren't, you go to hell. You see why this is not Christianity, and it's cultish? You see why we can't have inner faith with good people who want to just tell us about Jesus? We have to be smarter than that, right? Now, another reason that's crazy is that they believe This is a literal number, 144,000 to the T. It's exact. The problem with that is we're told in just a moment that the great multitude is innumerable. So many, we can't count everybody. I guess except if you are a Jehovah's Witness, then you're allowed to count, I guess, right? It's, It's not. These are crazy thoughts, all right? Now, there's another of you uh, that's probably a little bit more popular, and it comes from the futurist view. And I have, listen, I got friends, I got a lot of guys I, I read and stuff that have this view, and they, they see the 144,000 like this. They believe that the 144,000 are ethnic Jews from Israel, that they're the ones that are saved in the future seven-year tribulation that God, before the tribulation, comes and raptures up all of the church, and then what's left on the earth that gets saved during the seven-year tribulation are these 144,000 Jews. Um, I used to kind of think that, and a couple reasons. Number one, I didn't want to be here during the tribulation. like, give me the rapture so I don't have to be here. That's the first reason I thought that. The second reason I had a problem with that is this. If Before the seven-year tribulation, if all Christians are raptured up, how in the world do the unbelieving Jews believe if there's no one here to preach the gospel to them? So I don't don't believe that. I don't believe that. Remembering this is a third-tier doctrine, all right? This is not something we're going to argue, we're going to fight, we're going to hold it open. And if we get so overly interested in trying to find out who the 144,000 is, we miss it all. We miss the fact that on the day of God at the throne, that there will be Jew and Gentile alike. Just just know that part. All right. So, what do we learn about these one hundred forty-four thousand? What do I believe what it represents? I believe that one hundred forty-four thousand is a symbolic number, not literal, but a symbolic number representing all of the saints in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, all those who were covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. All people that have made it through all of the tribulation, which is not futuristic, but it's happening every single cycle in human history. A couple of reasons why I hold that view. Uh, 144,000 is uh, 12 times 12 times 1,000. We have talked about how this number 12 symbolizes completion. Well, in the Old Testament, the twelve tribes of Israel represented all of Israel right it wasn 't a literal thing it, was, it represented everyone in the New Testament. There are twelve disciples or twelve apostles that represent the totality of the church. So I think this is a this is a representation of all believers, Old Testament and New. Another reason why I believe that is because we 're told here in the text that They can't harm the earth until the servants of God are sealed. In the New Testament, the word servant is used 79 times to refer to all believers, both Jew and Gentile. These are the reasons why we believe what we believe. But once again, we're not going to squabble over these things. So who can stand? That's the question. Let's get back to what matters, the main thing. Who can stand those who are sealed. What does it mean to be sealed, though? What does it actually mean to be sealed? Well, in the ancient world, the signet ring of a king uh, did a couple of things. It declared authenticity, ownership, and security of something. The the ring would have a, a a king on uh, a ring on the king all right let me get that right and he would take it and he would stamp a document marking his image into it declaring ownership authenticity and security the idea of sealing comes from ezekiel 9 and what was happening in that ezekiel was there were two types of people there were those who served god and those who did not serve god god went through and he marked on the Foreheads of all of his people, marking them, imprinting upon them, declaring them and sealing them as his very own. Let me show you another passage about sealing. Look at Revelation 4, 14, 1. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name Written on their foreheads. True believers are sealed, imprinted the image on their foreheads. Now, we talked about, we're not reading the book of Revelation literally. It's a symbolic letter, it's apocalyptic language. So it doesn't mean that people who are sealed have G O D on their foreheads. All right, that's not what he's talking about here. What he's saying is they have not been tattooed on the outside. They've been tattooed on the inside. They have been marked with a personal God. He is covenanted and he has commissioned himself. And he takes this ring, Jesus, as the reigning king, and stamps our very soul and says, Mine, I own this. I will secure this. And I will seal this with my blood through Jesus Christ till the very, very end. This seal, to be more personal to us, is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. He, the third person of the Trinity, the forgotten God. Look at Ephesians 1:13 through 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When you believe in that very moment, instantaneous moment, You receive the Holy Spirit as a down payment on your soul until the final, final guarantee is done to the very, very end, the inheritance. There is a declaration that's happening here when we receive the Holy Spirit. Notice it's the work of God as well. You and I, we don't seal ourselves. We're not sealed because we give God permission to seal us. It's something that he does because he's God and he is the reigning king. All praise and glory goes to him. And the seal that God does in us is an unbreakable seal. Because we didn't seal ourselves just as No, and his family didn't seal themselves in the ark. God did that. We don't seal ourselves in our salvation. God does it. It's an unbreakable seal. And no matter what flaw or favor that you have in the future, no, what sin you have cannot break the seal that God has secured on your very soul. Assurance of salvation, y'all. That's what that is. You don't ever have to worry about breaking the seal. Now, Paul in Romans puts it another way in what is called the golden chain, the Ordis salutis. He tells us, this is how you're saved. Let me show you the steps of what it happens, believer. And listen to what he says in Romans 8, 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you're in Christ today, God began a work in you before the foundation of the world, before you ever breathe your first breath. And he's already secured it in eternity future. When he puts that word, the final chain there of glorified, it's already happened. It doesn't say will be glorified. It's already happened. It's sealed. Why? Because God, the triune God, is responsible for all of our salvation. The Father planned it. The Son accomplished it. And God, the Holy Spirit, applies and secures it. All God. That alone, we could stop right here and just get up and sing all day long because we have been sealed with an unbreakable seal by a holy God. We weren't worthy. That drives people to worship. It should drive us to worship, right? Yes. Who can stand? Those who are sealed. Are you Sealed. If I would ask you the question today, if you have absolute confidence, security, and you standing before the throne of God with complete confidence, why do you have that hope? Why do you have such confidence in that? Who or what do you trust in? to have that if your response is this well i've tried to be a good person i am not as bad as most i was sincere in my religion i did go to church the best that i can i tried to be the best dad the best mom the best citizen of my city I, 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 if that is your reasoning for your security, I do two things. I pity you, but I also appeal to you to listen to what John is saying here. That the only person that has confidence in their salvation is the person who's been sealed. Sealed by faith alone in Christ alone, by believing that the blood of Jesus Christ sealed you forever and ever, are you sealed? Hang on to that. I'm going to ask you again as we leave today. Now, who else can stand? Second group are those who endure. Those who endure can stand on that day. Now, let's look at this in 9 through 12 And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Notice that John hears the 144 but then sees this great multitude. Now, as I said, Some believe these are two separate groups. We believe they are the same group and that this great multitude are now the ones that are in heaven. That's who we're looking at here. The same group, Old Testament, New Testament believers, all in Christ who are sealed. This is one group of people. Now, notice what they're also wearing. What is their divine attire? They're wearing white robes and they're waving palm branches. Why are they doing that? If you remember, white robes, Uh, are the sign or symbolic of victory, palm branches, victory. What they're basically declaring is we are victorious. They are saying we have endured all throughout the tribulation. They pressed on. They didn't shrink back. They didn't rest on their ceiling, so to speak. They didn't presume on God's seal on them and just sit back And coast all the way into eternity. No, they worked out their salvation. Yes, they rested in their salvation. It was accomplished. But then they worked out their salvation. They served hard. They committed to the church, the bride of Christ. They prayed hard. They fought against sin. They fought for holiness they did not presume on the sealing of God to live however they wanted to for the rest of their life. They were so overwhelmed with a God that would not only save them but seal them to the very end that they couldn't help themselves but press forward and make their salvation their own. There is a great lesson here for us. Yes, we love the sealing, but it is not for us to coast on into eternity. We have to work out Those who endure are safe on the day of judgment. Now, verse 10, just a pause here for a moment. They said, salvation belongs to our God. Notice what they don't say in that very moment. They didn't say, I'm so thankful I pray the prayer. God, I'm so thankful that we pray partnered in the salvation thing. You did the cross and then I, I gave you permission and I did that. I'm so thankful, God. No, they don't say that. They say, salvation belongs to God. All God. They had great theology, right? And they have theology that should be emulated by us. Now, John goes on to tell us more about the great multitude. This is actually a fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise in Genesis 22. Remember, God came to Abraham, made a covenant, said, I'm gonna give you descendants as numerous as the stars, like sand on the seashore. Uh, They'll be of tribes, of nations, of all people. So this is a fulfillment of that promise. And what we get here is two things about the great multitude. Number one, they are innumerable. That means you can't count them. Jehovah's Witness, stop counting. Can't count them, right? Now, this number is innumerable to us, but it is not innumerable to God. It's very numerable to God. He knows exactly how many people on the face of the earth because He chose them for the foundation of the world. So He knows we don't know. Now, when it comes to thinking about How many will be in heaven? This is often a debated topic as well. Some would say it's such a narrow pathway. Very, very few people will actually get into heaven. Very few. While the other groups, universalists, say that, hey, everybody gets in. All you have to do is just stop breathing and have a funeral, then you're in, right? Those are both complete ditches because I think it's clear here that we're seeing It's going to be a great multitude, so many people that we cannot even count them, right? So don't lose heart. This is every believer from every history of the world, right? There's going to be a lot of people in heaven, so many that we can't not count them, right? Now, the second thing we see is the great multitude will be people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and every language, which is also a fulfillment of Genesis 22 and Abraham. He realized that Abraham was not a Jew. He wasn't a Jew. He was a Mesopotamian idol worshiper. He wasn't Jewish. So yet God came to him and said he would bless all nations through Abraham. The promise of God's salvation was never for ethnic Israel alone. It was always for all people, both Jew and Gentile And this tribe is very, very what? Multicultural, uh, multi-ethnic, multi-colorful. It's just this array of all people. And this is exactly what the church looks like in heaven. So if the church looks like that in heaven, the church on earth must look like that right now when it's possible. All right, let me explain that for a moment. A a very small church in a village in remote Africa is not a multi-ethnic culture. It's all Africans, right? It's probably a black church, right? You can't expect them to have tons of white people there because their geography just doesn't permit that or doesn't, doesn't fit that. But the churches here in Middle Tennessee, oh yeah, it needs to represent our culture, which is very, very, very diverse. It is. Although we might not look completely diverse today, the culture when we leave out here, the nations are here, right? So we have to fight against having white church or black church or Hispanic church or Asian church where it is possible, and it is possible right here. That's why we fight at this church to become like the church that is in heaven, right? Just like this. This also should end all racism. Not end racism in the world, but it should end racism in the church. We have the ability to see beyond these differences and see that we're all covered in the blood, right? It should end racism, y'all. R- racism in the church, racism anywhere. Do you know that racism, that it's actually racist to say that anyone is inferior because of the color of their skin? But did you know it's also racist to tell anyone that they are privileged because of the color of their skin? It's both sides. It's all racism. It's racism to champion one race. It's racism to separate one race. For the kingdom of God, we do not think like the world, do not get swept up in the nonsense of this world that uses and throws around the word racism like crazy, right? We can fight it because we have the gospel of Jesus Christ inside of us, and we fight for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. So if you want to know about our church, we're fighting for that, all right? We're fighting for diversity for that very, very reason. This picture of this great multitude, there is not the slightest bit of bigotry, prejudice, or separation, segregation because of the color of the flesh. In heaven, all together, regardless of skin color and language even. Like there's a lot of languages on earth. Heaven, one language, <laughs> one single language. It all is going to come together in the very end in future glory. This is a great picture of the kingdom of heaven. So who can stand? Those who are sealed and those who endure, right? Now let me show you some promises here, some rewards for the seal, those who endure, there's some great picture in verse 15 through 17. Let's look at this. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. What a great place to be. And serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them. Nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. John ends this by giving a picture of all Old Testament and New Testament believers who are sealed and who endure what they get in heaven. They get two things here. And the order of which they come in the text are very, very important. The first thing they get is God's presence. Second thing they get is God's provision. Order is absolutely huge. All right, look, look back at the text again. First, they are before the throne of God. They're in the presence of God. That comes before the providence, right? Right? What does that tell us about God? That God is the gift. God is the gift of heaven. God is the gift of the gospel. We share the gospel with people. Listen, the greatest gift is that you get God. Because before you believe in the gospel, you do not have God. You are born separated from God. You believe in Jesus. You get God and you get the presence of God. Not only futuristic here. You get the presence of God today. God is the gift. And his presence is better than anything that he can give you with his hand. Anything. It's always better to have the presence of God in your life. The second thing he gives is his providence, right? He, he's giving here his provision, meaning this is what he gives us when we're in heaven, right? It says that he is a shelter with us. He is a protector, almost a canopy over us. He tabernacles over us, and nothing, all the things that harm us on the earth, will never harm us ever, ever again because we are held and sheltered by this God. We see this picture of him being a shepherd. Lion, lamb, now Jesus is a shepherd. He's providing food and water. And he's wiping away tears. He's caring for all of his chosen people that he has sealed and who have endured to the very, very end. He swallows up death. Heaven will be a sinless and sorrowless land. Never, ever, ever again a tear shed in the presence of God. No hunger, no thirst. Just think about everything on the earth that's ever hurt you, it won't be there. And everything you've ever desired to make you fulfilled and happy in God will all be there. Everything is satisfied in the new heavens and the new earth. I think that if, if you and I, in Christ, I think if we could see ourselves in this throne room. If we could just take our uh, our sanctified imaginations daily, not just right now, but take our mind and picture that sitting before the throne of God, fully known, fully loved, fully sealed forever and ever and ever in the presence of God. I think if we could do that with regularity, I think that it would kill a 100 idols in our life today. Things that we love more than Jesus all slaughtered. I think it would, if we could see ourselves in this throne room, I think it would kill a hundred of our doubts, our fears, and our anxieties. All slaughtered. If we could just see ourselves at the throne of God. Temptations, killed. Despair, killed. Worry, all the things that we do in this life if we could just contemplate on the throne room of God and make it real in our life, I think it would dramatically change who we are. I think it would also dramatically change the way that we look at the world. You know what I mean? Like the way we look at the world right now, very, very bad, right? But I think if we could literally look at the throne of God, what's actually happening in the very, very end, this Nikkei there, I think it would calm everything down and change our worldview right now. Look at what Sam Storm said. I, I posted this earlier in the week. It was so good, but I want to share it again. Apart from the contemplative fixation on the promises and glories of heaven, you and I will always struggle to watch the news and react to unheavenly world righteously. If you insist on taking the short-sighted view of things, only seeing the world and all its lies, conspiracy theories, moral deformity, and injustice, then you'll be left forever frustrated, confused, and angry. Regular contemplation on future glory, future victory, not only changes us on the inside, but it, changes, it gives us new eyes to see the world as things are unfolding before us. So let me, let me close by saying this. I, I'm going to recap what we've done today. And I'm going to, maybe the Lord will call you to do something today. Because you never just contemplate on the word. It usually drives you to do something. The first thing I want to ask you is, are you sealed? With certainty, with confidence, are you sealed? Paul said in 1 Corinthians, that it is good for us to examine ourselves to see if we, in fact, are in the faith. So how do you do that? Well, is the Holy Spirit inside of you? Sometimes people get lost in that. What is that? Paul said the Holy Spirit was like the wind. Can't see it, but you can feel the effects of it. So when you have the Holy Spirit inside of you and you're sealed, here's what it feels like. You think about God throughout the course of your day. Not just when you're in church, here in sermon. But you wake up and you think, how can I please God today? Oh, look at that sky. That's awesome. God, you're amazing. And I love, look at my children. I say, God, you're good. Giving me my children is so awesome. I think about God. Do you think about God when you go throughout the course of your day? the other way, a mark of the Holy Spirit, is that you fight sin. You fight against it. You know it's wrong. And I don't mean the kind of sin you fight because people are watching. Oh, if my boss catches my computer and sees all this crap on here, I'll get fired. That's earthly conviction. I ain't talking about that. I'm talking about sinning against a holy God. And I don't want to do that. I fall short every single day but I'm fighting forward and I'm trying to kill sin in my life. I'm not laying in bed with sin. I'm not cuddling and coddling the sin in my life because I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit. Are you sealed with the Holy Spirit? If you're unsure about that, let me tell you how you can receive the seal of God. If you're not a believer in the room you, here at church, you don't know why somebody dragged you, maybe you're kind of begrudgingly here, Listen, why you're here is this. I'm getting ready to tell you the most important thing you need to hear today. You know, the world has a lot of bad news right now. Every time we turn on the TV, it's just bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, all of it. You get maybe a clip of some goofy dog or something for a minute after 29 minutes of bad news, right? That's our world. But let me tell you the worst, worst, most terrifying news in the world that you'll ever hear. The terrifying news is that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And all of us have offended our creator and are deserving of his wrath. Every single one of us. And he will come. He's coming back. And he will take account of all who have sinned against himself. Now, there's two ways that God can reconcile and settle these accounts. Two ways He can do that. Number one, He can settle account with sinners by giving them hell. It's the first thing He can do—wrath, forever and ever, separated from God. That's one way to settle accounts. But the other way He does it is called the gospel, the good news that God made another way. Another way. That he made a way for the love of God to save us from the wrath of God by sending his one and only son, the son of God to become sin who knew no sin to live the life we can't live to die our death on the cross, to be resurrected from the dead. On that cross he is absorbing the wrath of God that should have been poured out on you and me. That's How you are sealed. By not only acknowledging and agreeing with it in your brain, it's got to get here. It's got to get in the blood and it's got to get in the bones. And then when it does that, it's lived out in your life, not perfectly, but it is progressing in your life. Do you believe in Jesus? If you don't, let me tell you what, just quickly, if you want to be happy for a moment Do something that feels good to your body. You want to be happy for a day? Go shop and play golf. You want to be happy for a week? Go on a vacation to Florida. Be happy for a few months? Go get a new car. Go get a new house. If you want to be happy for life, get in Jesus Christ. You'll be happy in God forever and ever and ever. Do you know Jesus? If you don't, Stick around after today. We'd love to pray with you. We love God and we love people ferociously. So we'll pray with you. You can text the word Jesus in a digital manner if you're more comfortable doing that. Reach out to us this week and let us know. The second question I will ask is, are you enduring? Do you understand that you've been sealed by God forever and ever, but are you pressing forward Forward, taking possession of your faith. You're fighting hard for rhythms of holiness. Going, committing to the church, being involved in church. Not just attending church, but being involved in the bride of Christ. Serving his people. Giving, Right? Uh, praying, having a desire for his word drawing closer to the lord these are the signs of endurance are you enduring and if you're not sure grab one of the blue cards today look at the blue card and see if you're doing some of those things not so you can be sealed but because you have been sealed and you can't help but worship this god are you enduring are you fighting Listen, guys, it's a a war out there right now. The band's going to come out. Our fight is the evidence of faith. And as I said, this is war times. And the Christian is a soldier for Christ. We were made for this. We're not made to sit on the sidelines in a cocoon Christianity and try to survive until the very, very end. No, we get on the battlefield. We get off the sidelines. We get in the battle to fight for our faith. And here's the best part about it. We're going to leave you and sing about this as we leave. The best part about the fight is that the war has already been won. Imagine that for a moment. Fighting a battle that's already been won. That's the only way that you could stand up today as a victor and believe in it because Christ had Nikkei. We also can have this Nikkei, this victory. All right, let's stand right now. Let's go ahead and stand. Put your stuff down. Let's stand. Let's sing and let's sing that we belong to Jesus. If you mean it, then you sing it. If you don't know if you believe it or not, you just walk out and go talk to us and we'd love to tell you how you can proclaim that you belong to Jesus. Love you guys.